Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. This week, Zess sat down to chat on the EDM Podcast. If you're not familiar with him, Zess is a Dutch producer known for his futuristic and experimental productions. They're extremely impressive and intricate. You might know him from his releases on labels such as Cloud Kid, Fog Mountain, and The Sound You Need. This is a bit of a longer episode and we cover a ton of topics in our discussion. We first talk about Zess's background in music and how he initially transitioned into pursuing music full time. Even his bosses at the time were telling him to quit his job to pursue music, which gives you an idea of how driven and motivated he is about music. Part of what helped him go full time with music was getting a few big sync placements for companies like Apple and Huawei. He does a good amount of sync licensing, so we talk about how he got into this and how it helps him in the end make better music for his own personal music project. We also talk about how it's important to find the right scene in the music industry, as well as the importance of finding the right collaborators and partners to grow with. On the production side of things, Zess breaks down his full production workflow from the analog and modular gear that he uses to the typical processing chains that he uses in the DAW. He also dissects his songwriting workflow, discussing how a simple shift that he made has made him incredibly more productive in recent months. Zess also talks about how he handles Creative Block and why he feels that Creative Block is often a sign that things are moving in the right direction for your music and for your career. We also talk about how financial stability can really affect someone's creativity, which is an important but often under-discussed aspect of being an artist. Zess has some exciting new music planned for 2020. I can't talk about it right now, but it's extremely incredible. Until then, you should all check out his Unlike UEP that came out on CloudKit a few months ago. I'll play you a single off of it as we slide into the interview, just so you can get a feel for how talented of a producer he is. With that, let's wrap things up. Here's the EDM Podcast with Zess. back to the EDM podcast. Today I'm joined by Yoop, who releases under the name Zess. Yoop, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good. Thank you. So to start, I'd love to learn more about your background in music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd love to learn what got you into music and then more specifically music production. Um, that's an interesting question. I'm actually not a, a trained musician or anything. I've, um, I've studied um, industrial design. So like I'm an, I'm an industrial yeah. engineer and I've got a degree in industrial design. But during my studies and during my childhood, I was very much fascinated by music and playing the guitar because I started playing guitar from when I was nine years old. And then I kind of rolled into producing music when I was in high school, I think. And then when I went on to the University of Technology, I basically just took it to a new level and really started focusing on music production. And then when I finished my studies, I worked at a design firm for, for a few months, I think six months or so. And then what I decided to do is like dive, dive in head first and just try and become full-time musician. What initially got you into producing when you were in high school? 
Um, I guess it was um, at the time when uh, dubstep became a thing. My sister used to listen a lot to uh, like the classic records by Scream and like Benga. And at first I was like, I don't like this genre at all. But um, then kind of like a few months in, I started to really appreciate it. And um, we went to see, I think, Casper and Roscoe and like N-Type and the others in, in yeah. like a show. I think it was 2012 or something or 2014. It was a, it was a long time ago. Um, but then we went there and I was like so hyped after that night i was like oh man this is something i want to try out so i i started making i started like learning how to produce music just by uh, recreating some of the sounds that i've heard that night and uh, i just tried to make some dubstep type of music first yeah so that's that's kind of how i got into uh, learning how to like produce a song so when you went off to uni was music at all a thought of something that you wanted to do professionally or was that just like a hobby that slowly developed into kind of the career you've had going right now well it kind of always has been my main um emotional exhaust i would say and it was always hard to like envision myself doing something different than music but um the study i did at uni was uh pretty unique and it, it focused a lot on, on design and design aesthetics, but also on programming and like the technical side behind um, designing a product, which is, which I still find very interesting to this day. It's like, how do uh, chipsets work and like, how do uh, embedded systems work? And like, how can I write code to make a servo move or like stuff like that? So I've always been like very enthusiastic about technical stuff like engineering stuff and i guess that always brought me back to music in terms of like sound engineering and like sound design for me is a lot about uh, engineering the right sounds and using the right tools to create uh interesting sounds so i guess it always kind of stuck with me when i was at uni even if that was a completely different environment it still pushed me towards doing more music and like learning more about music. It's interesting that you say that. I feel like a lot of people think if they don't go to uni for music, their degree has mm -hmm. nothing to do with music whatsoever. And I think it's cool to hear that you chased and pursued something that was a creative interest that wasn't directly related to music, but still you were interested in. And I think, I don't know, just got you excited, even though it wasn't necessarily going to university for music. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's true. And it's a lot of, um, I mean, now I, I, I've uh, got to know like a lot of people that actually went to uh, uni for music or like went to um, conservatory. I don't know if that's yeah. the right term in English, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, I, I get to know all these people now and it's, it's just very interesting, like stepping into that world, coming from a different background or like a different development. And I, I still, sometimes I still feel like, music or like a uh, conservatory would have been very nice for me but yeah also the fact that i that i didn't um specifically learn how to uh work with one instrument and just try to learn everything so yeah. everything in terms of like synths and like sound design and all kinds of instruments and music production in general that basically yeah it feels a lot broader than what you would learn at conservatory i guess yeah 
I want you to talk a bit more about that while you were in uni and then while you were in high school, just developing and growing as a producer. You said that after those, you know, first dubstep shows, you started to reverse engineer and try to recreate some of those sounds. Talk more about what that process was like for you to develop your skills as a producer. Oh, it was pretty, pretty funny. I think, um, I started in GarageBand. So my, my dad had like an old, well, not an old computer, but like one of the earliest, um, IMAX. Uh, mm. and basically you could run a garage band on there. So, um, I was always just trying to, uh, like install some crazy plugins on there to try and like, like I, I would always try and get massive, yeah. like native instruments, massive and like the classic dubstep synths, uh, on there and try to experiment with them. Um, so that's kind of how I started. And I started started with using a lot of loops from Logic itself. So not really sourcing any like samples from outside of the program. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I found out pretty soon that, because um, that iMac was also my dad's working computer. So I had to be like, <laughs> I had to be a bit careful as well as yeah. like, I didn't have uh, 24 hours a day that I could spend on trying to find the right, the right sounds. Uh, so then um, I had a job for a year and then I bought my first MacBook with that money that I earned at the job. Um, and then I basically had the tools to spend 24 hours a day on improving the sound and like yeah, uh, just installing and like using everything that I wanted. So I guess that was like the next step. Talk more about that process from graduating uni, getting a quote unquote traditional job and then growing to the point where you are now. It's, um, I guess it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, cause from the second year of, uh, of uni, I've had, um, a great relationship with, uh, a company called, uh, Awau, and they make, um, a new series of very intuitive uh, MIDI controllers, which allow you to translate like movements into uh, MIDI messages, which is like very cool for like live yeah. uh, live shows and like um, even within production, it's very it can be very intuitive to um, just jam away with a synth and be able to like use your hand movement to control like an LFO or like oscillator frequencies yeah. or something. So that's where I worked from, uh, well, I did an internship the second year of my bachelor, uh, studies. And then, uh, from that year on, um, basically kept working with them, uh, until I finished up my master studies. When I finished up my master studies, I've, I've started doing like four days a week, uh, work with them. So like more on a full-time basis. And we did a few Kickstarter campaigns and. Yeah, some just some other projects that were interesting. We did something very cool with uh, Desperados. We did like a audio visual installation, and um, yeah, it was always very fun and very cool to work with them. They had great uh, great projects to work on, but it always felt like something was something was missing in terms of um, the fulfillment that I got from the work that I was doing. And that kind of led me and like the, the guys who run the company, they're still good friends. And, um, like they set me down like one morning and they would, they would 
talking to me like we think that you should focus on doing full-time music and that's when it kind of hit me like interesting yeah, i think i feel the same but i <laughs> i just i just didn't give myself the the breathing room i guess to um to figure that out by myself why do you feel like you were conservative and not figuring that out by yourself i think it's it had to do with um, just finishing up my studies and thinking that I'd, I'd have to do something um, that I'd gone to uni for. So okay. it's like, it's, once I got the degree, I was like, all right, now off to like a standard job because that's what I spent six years of my life yeah. uh, working for. So that was kind of the, the thought pattern that I had um, back then. But yeah, that, that obviously... Um, led to me not being as happy as I could be and not being as as um as productive as I could be also during that um, transition period so during the period that I was working at uh the yeah the design company um a few uh big sync um yeah a few big syncs happened so one for uh Huawei and one for Apple and uh then i also had like uh more of a budget to actually go and try out my my musical dream i guess so at that point were you transitioning into being full-time once you got those two bigger sync placements yeah yeah exactly also now it's like a year and a half after deciding to go full-time it's it's still a big challenge to keep your head above the water in a way and uh not get too stressed out about like financial situations yeah i guess that was that was the same back then but in a different way because i i just finished up like a major part of my life i guess and um yeah i was still kind of like i had the feeling that i was still finding my way um and then when the sinks came in it was like i can actually do this i could like try it out um so that i I guess that was a nice uh, push in the back as well. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that in particular, because a lot of people listening to this podcast would love to, at some point transition from their current, from their current nine to five to a full-time job in music. Was that an easy decision for you or was that like a tough decision? Was it methodical? How did you approach saying, Hey, I'm going to quit what I've just spent the past six years on to chase my dream in music? It, it's never been, um, easy uh, to to decide I want to go for music full-time but it, it did definitely help out a lot that people around me were very supportive and no one really questioned that decision everyone that I spoke to and mentioned it to was like oh yeah no shit you're gonna no shit you're gonna try that because you've, you've been working on music ever since you were like 16 years old and I guess that was that was the that was also very nice and like feeling yeah. that supportiveness around you. Um, but looking back on the whole situation, I'm I'm very proud of a lot of the things that I've done in the meantime and like a lot of things that I've been able to do and like things that I've achieved. But there's also a side of me that's um, that wishes that I would have planned it out a bit more. How so? It's like, for instance, when I talked about the sinks, when, when those came in, I was like, oh, that's super nice. And then it almost feels like, or it felt like I, I could spend time on doing something completely different. So like my own musical project, 
it almost felt like that would have the same uh, financial response yeah. as sync work. But the the fact of the matter is that that that's not the um, that's not the reality. Like doing an artist project yeah. and trying to get that off the ground is is a lot about having like a very long breath and like having a lot of stamina. Yeah, maintain a certain output, I guess, and like frequency of like releasing music and mm. getting into the studio with with people that you find inspiring and like getting involved with the right audience as far as you can control it. But yeah, I, I just envisioned um, working on my own project as being, as like having the same financial outcome, which it didn't have. So I guess that's that's something I would have liked to plan out a bit more. Like if I look back, I, I would I would say that I would I would have spent a bit more time on trying to get that sync thing developed a bit further on. We haven't talked about sync too much on this podcast. We had an episode with an artist, James Rollman, for those of you that want to learn more about sync licensing, but at least for right now, talk more about your specific experience with sync licensing. You mentioned that that's how you got a lot of money. So I'm sure people that are listening to this that want to make money off of music might be interested. So talk about how you got those connections and you ended up getting those placements with um, Apple and the such. Yeah, it's um, it's a good point. Um, sync is a very... It can be a very hard thing to do, I guess. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people uh, around me, especially producers that are trying to get sinks placed and um, some of them are succeeding, some of them are not succeeding. Um, I would consider myself as uh, not as a sync expert because I've, I've got, uh, I haven't got like that many syncs to say like i'm an expert at this but i yeah the way i got in in into the sync thing was um i met up with uh now a close friend of mine he produced music under the name gemini yeah basically he invited me over for i think it was three years ago to come over to london for a week and work on a remix of one of his like uh tracks that was going to be on his album and then when we, when when I got to London, we basically started working on the new track together, um, which turned out to be this like Hans Zimmer meets Transformers meets Skrillex thing that was like it was it was it sounded really big. So then what we decided to do was uh, because it like whenever his manager sent out that track to um, to like music uh, license licensors and like uh, sync agents it really started to make an impression on them. Yeah. So what we did is we decided to um, hook up for like two or three weeks more, like just spending time writing songs like that and making like very bombastic, um, syncable music. Um, so that's exactly what we did. So we rented like a cabin in Scotland or like in Wales and like we went to Belgium just on like writing trips. And uh, that's where we made most of the music that's getting synced now which is like three years after we made it yeah but yeah the 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 point that i was working towards was like my connection with sync is actually through 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 tom so through um slinger through gemini and uh yeah his manager knew a lot of or knows a lot of great people in in the sync world and he was basically able to get us in touch with the right people at the right time and then whenever we got um, 
uh, we've also done a few um, compositions where the client sends over a brief and is like, it should sound something like this and have these influences and like, then it becomes a process of just trying to fulfill the client's needs and that sometimes succeeds. Yeah, Tom Tom does a lot of sync stuff uh, on his own as well. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I just like step in, and do some stuff as well. And like, sometimes we still do projects together. Um, but it's a very interesting feeling when three years after you make a song, Apple knocks on your yeah. door and says, we want this song for our new campaign for like the Apple Watch. Basically, all you can think then is like, wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Like, and how did they, why is that happening now? Because like yeah. three years ago, we made that song. Um but we have like a very big catalog that's still being pitched out every now and then. So I guess sync in my perspective can be a very tricky uh, business to get or like to wrap your hands around, like how, how to make the perfect pitch for sync is still a mystery yeah. sometimes. <laughs> As like a lot of times music supervisors and like uh, sync agents, they, they know what they're talking about because they have like a certain background that has kept them involved in music for a long time. So they know they have a bit of a musical background and they know what they, what, what they want to hear. Um, but sometimes you get a brief from a client and it's like, <laughs> what, the, what the fuck are they asking? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> sometimes they ask you to like blatantly like copy a song or like, <laughs> like it's crazy. You just, like, the, the stuff you see in, in sync briefs is, is pretty, pretty hilarious sometimes. Um, I've only this week I, I tried to do a sync uh, like from a brief from a client and it was it was pretty it was pretty fun to do uh, every once in a while it's, it's fun to make something that's completely out of your own territory and that's completely different and something making something that someone wants to have is is still it can be very interesting sometimes. I think it's a different framing than most artists have when they're creating music. Because I would imagine that most musicians, at least when they're making music for their own project, they're making music for themselves at the end of the day. So it's a different story exactly. when you have a very, very, very particular space that the song that you're creating needs to live in. And I think yeah. sometimes that can be fun, depending on your perspective. At least for me, the sync stuff that I've done, it's fun to have such strict guidelines that I have to fit a song into. And it almost like lays out the direction for me. But I would imagine, especially with the amount of sync that you've done, it's not always that great of a process if you aren't excited about the style or about the direction for the track you're working on. Yeah, it's true. And that's like, sometimes you get a very nice brief that kind of kind of fits within your universe, I guess. And then it's yeah. easier to create something that's that resonates a bit more with you as well. Uh, but in the end of the day, it's, it's always... Um, it's always a product of, of your own creativity. So even, even when, when I'm doing brief that I'm not, that, that doesn't feel anything like what I would make, it's still kind of at the end becomes something that I could be proud of. Like it's, it's like, it's even, yeah. it's a bit like being proud of making, repainting like a Picasso or something <laughs> and just like, it's yeah. not, it's not what I would usually paint, but it's at least it looks good and it sounds like. Or like it looks good and it looks like a painting. So that's good. Yeah. So sliding this into a project that is more your style, kind of talk about how the Zest project that you're working on right now came about. Well, when I when I started 
actually like getting into production on a deeper level. I did a, um, a dubstep project, so I, I had a completely different alias for that. And uh, it just, yeah, it was a fun time. Did a lot of like DJing and um, yeah, just, just fun times, I guess. But yeah. uh, none of it really uh, struck me on a like very emotional level back then. Also, because I was still, I still had the feeling that I was developing my sound and like um, trying to be unique in a genre that's specifically limited to a certain BPM is kind of uh, draining after a while. At least that's my experience. Yeah. It was like, uh, I tried to experiment a bit with like, with like 110 BPM stuff, for like drum, drum and bass at the end, like 172 mm. or like, and that were like the three BPMs that you could work on. <laughs> back <Yeah>. then <laughs> and um like if you ex if you started experimenting a bit more then it, it most of the time a bit of negativity came back from from the community i i guess that's i mean fair if if they feel that way then then that's fine but it kind of felt restrictive to keep that going so then i decided um that i wanted to do something that resonated with me like fully and something without any um creative limits enforced by whoever like whomever yeah um so i guess that's when i started the zest project and and one of the first releases i did was basically a, a, a free to free to download album which i removed from soundcloud <laughs> a year ago but uh that was like it had like all kinds of crazy influences from jazz and like polyrhythmic stuff going on in every track and like it felt like liberation in, in a way, just because I felt like I was doing something that didn't have any restrictions and um, something that I could like see myself uh, expanding over the years to come. So yeah, that's how that kind of started, I guess. And um, first, oh, at first I, I wanted to um, keep a low profile and like stay uh, incognito with the project so I, I, I didn't want to show my face and like um i wanted the music to speak for itself i didn't want uh, any visual reference with the music but that did turn out to be quite a tough thing thing to do so i mean there's like the, the obvious examples like burial yeah who's done it for like so long he kept his like identity completely unknown but yeah, what I what I noticed was was that um, during shows I had this 3D printed mask, and that kind of became the visual aesthetic for the Zest project. Yeah. So then, the whole point I was trying to make with staying incognito and not having a visual reference with the music, that kind of went out the window because the the 3D printed mask <laughs> was my visual identity. Kind of talk more about that because I feel like that's something that I've thought of but have never really talked to anyone about the power of making that face-to-face -face personal connection. You know, obviously Marshmallow and Dead Mouse do their thing, but I think that's a very small particular instance of people where that actually benefits them by not having their face. Even then, I don't think people that are getting their start really think about how important that is to try to make more of that personal connection. Going on Spotify, all of your favorite artists by this point probably have their face in their profile picture for a reason. You know, I think there are exceptions to the rule, but Kind of talk more about why that was so important for you. I think for me, it was it was just at that point also uh, coming from a, a scene like a type of music, and then I'm 
like referencing the the dubstep drum and bass community they're all very nice and like friendly people but in terms of like musical freedom if it always felt a bit restrictive so when i started this new project i was also a bit um scared in a way that um that's that certain atmosphere of like uh controlling your creativity Mm-hmm. would follow me to the new project so i kind of had the feeling that if i if i would show my face straight from the get-go that everyone around me would say like oh this is his new project um and like i was i was almost a bit afraid that all my old fans would follow me to my new project which is very like looking back <laughs> on that it, it doesn't sound very appreciative to the people that followed me yeah um but it was kind of just a I wouldn't I wouldn't call it an experiment but it was just a feeling that I had back then and obviously the people that were appreciative of my experimentations within the dubstep genre they they found out that I was doing a new project and they also liked that so it's kind of like the people that were enjoying my experimental stuff they followed me anyway so eventually it worked itself out but it was um I guess it was just a just something I was a bit afraid of back then. And also I'm not a very open, well, I, I wasn't a very open person back then. Yeah. I was a bit more shy and introverted and that wearing that mask and like not showing my face was a way to create some, some buzz without, I don't know, without being very, uh, um, maybe vulnerable. You say that. Yeah. Vulnerable. That's a, that's the word I was looking for. So it, it didn't make me feel vulnerable within the early stages of the project which was uh yeah which is when i when i look back on the whole thing it's, is how i think that i made that decision back then i'd love for you to talk more about how the direction and focus for the zest project has evolved over time because i think even just listening to your music i can hear that and then talking to you it seems like you've made a bit of a pivot with the trajectory for this project Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's sometimes I, I talk about this with other people and sometimes when I check out my uh, Spotify page, I'm like, I've, I've done so many different things now <laughs> that it's like, for me, it's impossible to hear like a signature or like a red, uh, thread through my own music. It's like, it's very hard to find, I guess, a common factor in all of my albums, for instance. Yeah. Um, and I guess it started off with, uh, well, with that f- that first album that I did, the the free to download thing. That basically felt like very exper- experimental jump into like nearly like jazz territory, like very experimental. Um, I was listening a lot to um, uh, Flying Lotus back then, mm-hmm. and like Aphex Twin, and like all kinds of. Yeah, like very, very uh, expressive, artistic, and like conceptual musicians, I guess. Um, so that definitely influenced me then. And um, after that, I uh, released, I think, still the most successful work to date is the Hindsight EP on Inspected. Yeah. Because um, I'd been in touch with uh, Ryan, who runs Inspected. I had been in touch with him before starting the Cess project and I, I sent him some of my like dubstep stuff uh, of my other alias before. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's nice, but not like, 
not like my cup of tea. And then when I sent sent him some of the of the zest stuff, then he was like, "Oh shit, this is this is very nice. We need to like release this." Yeah. Um. So that's when, I, yeah, I kind of felt like the ball got rolling back then. I felt like I was doing a lot more beats and like uh, I don't I don't really want to call it future bass, but it kind of. I, not like not that I don't like future bass, but kind of it doesn't really fit within that niche as well. So it's like yeah, it's a bit broader than that. Um, and I tried to do something with like my guitars and like because uh, the guitars have always been a very big influence. Maybe that's the 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 common factor in all of my music is my guitars. Maybe, but um, yeah, I guess that was uh, that was when I started using my guitars and made a lot of like beats and more like danceable stuff and. Um, that really took off for a bit so did a lot of shows on the back of that ep and like gained a lot of momentum and fans like if for me at least it's like it's always relative of course but that was the moment that i was feeling like whoa this is this is big this feels feels big to me um i think the the there's a three-year period between my latest album and the darkened album which was my album before that uh, and within those three years, I basically finished up my uni and got into a lot of like the sing stuff, which was way more production yeah. heavy. So it kind of led to me also, obviously like learning a lot from the people that I worked mm. with, like, like Tom, uh, Gemini, um, it's like me and him, we, we've worked together so many times and we've learned so much and, um, I think we really felt like we got to next level. And then when I got back to the studio to work on new music, I really noticed a difference in my abilities to, um, to warp sounds, like to record stuff and just completely fuck with it. And just like, yeah, go, go crazy on sound design. So it's, it's definitely interesting for me to, to look back and see like the difference between the albums and whatever may have caused it. How important do you feel like it was for you to have somebody to grow with, with your production and Tom? I think it was, um, for me, it was mainly just, uh, finding someone that had the same, well, I mean, I mean, for my, from my perspective, it's like, we've always had a very, uh, um, strong connection in terms of like, uh, wanting to learn and like, in terms of speed of like production, yeah. like, uh, it may sound very stupid, but like the speed of using actual Logic Pro hotkeys and like we would just fly through <laughs> making these tracks and like just also being critical, but in a very constructive way. That was that was also a key to that collaboration. And like I was always working by myself before that point. So I was like, I never had any features or like any people that I worked with. Uh, not on the music side at least so that was all new and then yeah. um yeah i guess my experience with tom was the first time that i actually was in the studio with someone else and uh that someone else turned out to be one of the one of the best producers that i that i know he's like i mean he still is like he's still just smashing out of the park with everything that he makes it's yeah it's just very nice having having that um back and forth between two producers who who've got a certain like mindset and I've, I think I've, what I brought into that collaboration was, yeah, maybe some of the, some of the human touch and like some of the organic elements that we would, we would incorporate in these productions and like using actual okay. hardware synths and stuff like that. That's like, 
that was an interesting thing when we started to do that. And that's something that I took with me and um, expanded on later, I think. Also with my, yeah, with my later work, it's like you can hear the influence of me using all all the hardware that I've gathered over the years and like playing guitar and like using modular synths to create crazy soundscapes and like granular synths. And it took a while to get used to it, but we found such a a great way of working together um, that after that collaboration, and after going like back and forth on productions, it felt really good when I was back working just by myself and knowing that I could do all these things because I've le- I, I had learned them. So then when yeah. when I when I finished up or like when I nearly finished up my latest album, I sent it to Tom and like he sent back a lot of the notes on like maybe you could try this, maybe you could try that, and it was like super fun to mm-hmm. yeah to feel that it, it kind of works within each of our own projects as well. So yeah, he's he's definitely one of the people that influenced me into um into diving deeper into my own skill set and like expanding that. And from the moment that I started working with him, I think the threshold got way lower for me to find other people to work with, so like singers and like um other producers and like getting into the studio with a lot of people from uh yeah, from from all kinds of places all over the world. Um, and that was, yeah, it was a good way for me to lower my threshold and like start to experience some more collaborative, um, music making. So you mentioned how working with him, you started to develop more of what your current workflow is in terms of hardware, modular gear, kind of talk about what your workflow is looking like now in the studio. Like you just dropped your Unlike UEP, you've got a lot of music on the horizon. So I'd love for you to dive into what that process looks like when you're alone in the studio working for your Zest project. It's um, <laughs> it's actually interesting that you uh, say that because um, I've been trying to find uh, yeah a new way for me to work actually because I, I don't think it's ever it's ever going to be in a place that I'm 100 uh, percent happy with it it hardly ever happens that I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that I think like, well, it's all good now. I I don't have to learn anymore. It's like, it's always about just to keep on learning how to do things in a way that resonate with you at at a certain point in time. So for me now, my workflow is again, changed completely over the past few months. Um, as I've been playing a lot more guitar again and like singing a lot more myself and it's, it's completely changed the way that I've I've been looking at my own music again. So with the with the closer album, it was a lot about me recording a lot of analog stuff and like especially the the synths were a huge influence on my on my creative process back then. So it was all about um, making like crazy soundscapes with uh, with modular synths and like then recording that and putting that through uh, granular synths or like granular plugins. And then using those granulated bits for a pad or something and then reverb reverb on that and then exporting that again and putting it through the granular thing again and like doing like all kinds of destructive processes to the recorded audio signal that it doesn't sound anything like the original signal anymore. Um, But it kind of felt really good and experimental and I guess that destructive way of working also came from my... Uh, also has a bit of a, a foot in my emotional state of being back then. I was a bit 
like a bit more destructive, a bit more on edge and like maybe a bit less happy with where I was at that point. And not specifically because of music, but like a lot of things yeah. were happening and like uh, that resonated within, within my music. But now, now that I've gone to like a new place and like I've, I've been living in, in Rotterdam from, uh, from February now. So it's been okay. about like eight months that I lived here and it took a while to get used to like the new place and like the new studio. Um, but now it's all coming together and I'm, I'm just, I'm really enjoying starting off a song on like an acoustic guitar and like recording that with a good mic and, um, finding something on like, again, like one of my synths and just trying to find a, a good, um, basis for a song. Cause where I, where I usually started with, with, uh, with the song was with just like overproducing the shit out of an idea and then coming yeah. back with like, Oh shit, I, uh, I would love to have some vocals over this. But then because I produced so much of the song, there was no room for anything like a vocal anymore. So that yeah. kind of was, um, it was a very interesting way also on the, on the closer album because I had some feature featuring artists, um, and to work with their vocals and try to blend that with an already very hyperactive and like very present production behind that. That was a bit of a challenge, uh, but a very yeah. fun one. But what I'm trying to do now is change my workflow into a way that, um, I can start a song on a guitar and just by singing some lyrics myself, maybe even like humming some, some nonsense over it and then recording that revisiting the idea later. And then, writing some some lyrics and then singing that and then going into like the full diehard production cycle of me just like trying to manipulate everything that I, I recorded and like I kind of wanted to switch the the workflow around so not having the the songwriting aspect at the end but having the songwriting aspect at the beginning because <laughs> I think that's way more logical but I had to find that out the the hard way I guess just through making so much overproduced stuff and I don't mean anything like negative with overproduced I just think like yeah. the moment you spend hours and hours and hours and hours on trying to get the right kick drum sound that's what <laughs> that's when you can call something overproduced but yeah it seems like you've got a really creative and organic approach to creating tracks you know, I think we've got a lot of people listening to this podcast that are stuck in a lot of those same bad habits that are getting them to kind of the same generic end result. What advice would you give to somebody in order to like switch up their workflow, try to get more of more of an organic and creative start so they can get more of a unique end product? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I would say that a lot of my um, organic influence mainly comes from... Uh, <laughs> now we're going into like very fluffy territory uh it's it. <laughs> a lot of like self-acceptance um in a way i've experienced a lot of um uh going back and forth in like the music industry and talking to people that um have certain opinions on how the music industry works for instance and like they can they can fire like their opinions onto you and say like this is how the music industry works and you have to make uh 300 songs or like 200 songs a week or like <laughs> a year to yeah. succeed um i always found it pretty pretty tough to um stand up for myself and say like i don't really care how the music industry works 
I just want to do this thing. I just want to like make sure that whatever comes to my mind that I can translate it into sonics and show it to the world if I think it's, it's, it's ready. Um, and I still have a hard time sometimes doing that because obviously there's a lot of sort of like unwritten rules in the, in the, in the music, uh, industry that, that do kind of make sense. I mean, just releasing music into the, into the open without any PR, without any management or like, uh, marketing behind it, that still will get you less views than having a marketing plan or like having internet presence, I guess. So that's like given, but, um, I guess for like, in terms of producing and using your own organic, uh, influence in that process, for me, that was a lot about, um, overcoming certain doubts about my own creative qualities and like having faith in just using instruments and making them your own. And yeah, just a lot of like accepting, uh, accepting yourself and accepting um, your own workflow in that way. So for instance, that's why I love uh, the use of um, modular synths because basically they, (laughs) they allow you to make the most horrifying uh, bleep noises for a whole day. And sometimes you can make a patch you can set it up and you can let it run for a whole week. And then at the end of the week, it sounds completely different than the beginning of the week, which is nuts. And I mean, at first I thought like, well, this, this random stuff might be a bit strange, might be a bit weird. Like people might not, um, people might not understand it. But then I started to realize like, it doesn't really matter that people that I have a, that I have a certain fear that people won't understand or accept it. If I want to hear that sound or if I want to make that sound or use it or like record it and blend it into something nice that, that turns into a full song that people can listen to, then that's something that I can be proud of in the long run. And, um, I guess that sense of like self-acceptance and I'm, I'm also with guitar. It's like, I'm not the best guitar player in the world. I'm, I'm far from it, but I know how to play certain chords and I know how to like create a nice vibe with a guitar, getting back to using the guitar in my production process as well. And like building up the, the, the trust I have in myself to use that guitar or to utilize it to my advantage, I guess that, I guess that was, that's kind of the key. That's always been the key for me to like overcome certain fears or thoughts that I have about what others might think of the sounds that I make. (laughs) If that kind of, kind of answers the question, I guess it's a very, it can be a very vague answer, but. No, but I think that's a really insightful perspective on that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you get some producers within maybe six months that are already making really great and creative music because they simply don't have an ego with it. Generally, they don't have those expectations where they're worried about what the end result is. That might just be personal or they're new enough where they don't have that. And I think for a lot of people, once you've been working on music for two, three, four years, you can start to get all of those voices. You can become self-conscious and you won't Mm -hmm. allow yourself any room for creativity which it sounds like is something that you've really worked on making sure that you're in the space to be able to feel open to create whatever it is you want to create, which in the end is going to get a more interesting result. That's very, yeah, that's a very good insight, I guess. Also, there's a, there's a, another point to this, which is of course like financial stability. Like if you, mm-hmm. 
if you want to consider making music like a full-time occupation, then sometimes it can also feel like you don't have the freedom to be as expressive or as egoless as you want to be. So like, that's at least from my experience and like my perspective is like, sometimes I just feel like, damn, I need to make some steady money. Like I need to have (laughs) some source of income that's not very fluctuant and like, I need to like pay rent and I need to pay for food. So it's like, (laughs) sometimes I can be in the studio and be like, what am I doing? Is this even gonna, is this even gonna get me like streams? But Mm. I've, yeah, I've just been trying to like, that's, that's also why the sync thing is such a big help in that, in that um, area as well. And once you get into like producing more and more music that maybe is not right for your own project, but can be used for other projects or like you can ghost produce for others or like produce songs and other people will cut them. That's a very specific source for an income that can be very handy when you want to have another project. Like I have my Zest project, which is not, um, relatively it's not a very big project it's like i have a very specific amount of listeners that enjoy what i'm doing and maybe that will grow in the future maybe not i i i don't know but it's it does feel good to find uh, or to try and find new ways to um relieve that financial stress so i can be as as egoless in yeah. my own project as possible it's interesting so it seems like having the sync stuff frees you up to do exactly what you want to with this yeah. S project without having to worry about creating something that's commercially viable so that you can pay the bills off of it. Exactly. Yeah. The last few podcasts that we've had, I feel like have been the exact opposite where the artists, all they have is their main artist project and they've been working on it for a while and they have this pressure because at the end of the day, that's the thing right now that is putting bread on the table. So I think that's a really interesting and often underappreciated aspect of enabling yourself as an artist is having a job that directly supports it. I think your situation is a great one because you're also creating. You're not just, you know, working a boring nine to five that you're not excited about. You're still creating music. It's not exactly what you want, but it enables you to do what you want to with your own personal project. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a, there's another like downside to the whole thing is that even, even if you try and shift the financial security to, um, let's say sync for instance then within sync there's also a lot of uncertainty and like within <laughs> within music in my view that's like at my stage at the stage where i'm at I'm, i don't know how to describe the stage or something but it, it kind yeah. of feels like there's there's uncertainty in everything that i try in terms of music and that's why i say like I would I I would prefer to do sync stuff as a financial as a financial source and then do my own project with that money. Uh but sometimes like it has happened before that it's not enough for like one sync has come in uh within six months. And that's yeah. that's great. But then after the six months you you're back to square one basically. So it does feel sometimes that I, I need to switch back to finding a job, which I'm, which I'm capable of, I think, because I've got yeah. like everyone, everyone's capable of finding another job, obviously, <laughs> but I've, I've actually done like a, a, a studies for something completely different that I could find a job in. And then, but then, yeah, there's another, 
type of like stress that comes with that as well. It's like yeah. whenever you find another job that you that's outside of the music um, landscape, then does that influence my creative output for my music? So I want to move over into more technical production stuff at some point. And I think a good segue might yep. be talking about an issue that we discussed um, before we were on the air, which is creative block. At least recently, yeah. you've been releasing a ton of music. You've got both an album and an EP out this year, and I believe a couple of singles kind of spaced throughout that. Talk about how you manage and deal with creative block in the studio. Um, yeah, it's very interesting because um, I get I get the question a lot, like how how do you deal with creative block or like people that send messages messages to me saying I've I've got a creative block and I was wondering if you have any tips and um, <laughs> for me that's like a creative block has always been about uh, development so being feeling like you're in a rut or like feeling like you're stuck is actually the moment that you're starting to like learn the most and that's where for me personally that's happened a lot of times um, where I was just like sitting in the studio and not knowing what to do and being like oh everything I make is not is not up to standard or like up to spec or something and that's kind of when I started seeing those moments of of feeling blocked I, I just wanted to start like start seeing those moments as moments of like self-development and the thought that not everything that I was making had to see the outside world helped a lot in that so kind of getting to a point where you can realize that yeah. you can make as much shit as you want <laughs> any day and you don't have to worry because people won't hear it unless you want people to hear it so if you want to spend like like me for instance if you want to spend um a week or two or like maybe even like two months or like three months or whatever on finding the right um uh, guitar sound or the right synth sound or the right serum patch or the right you know you can you yeah, can spend yeah, yeah. ages on perfecting something that's that's eventually going to go into your toolbox um just like getting yourself to make peace with that mm -hmm. that's a very 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 interesting um thing that i always try to like convey to other people as well it's like the the moment that you that you feel like it's not moving forward i th i feel that, that those are the moments that it's actually moving forward the most in terms of production because when everything is going super quickly and like very fast then you're in a good spot but you're not um at least in my experience you're not crafting those tools that go into your in your toolkit basically yeah because when you when you develop that's when you get the feeling that you that you're standing still but once you've developed and you've broken the creative block let's call it that um then you go on to the period of time where you're very like productive and you can you can like you can use those newly gained tools to create music that resonates with you more fluently and like quickly and you can get ideas down again that make a lot of sense and that's only because you've taken the time to take a step back and like look at your own process and think something is something is not working and once you zoom in on like a very specific thing that's when you get to the to the learning i think it seems like to a large extent you're focused on managing your expectations with where 
a session should go and what the end result is going to be. And then also with that, allowing yourself time to really do whatever you want, not just to focus on getting an end result or an end track with every single session that you're working in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's of course from my, um, perception, which is yeah. obviously also a biased one because I don't, <laughs> I don't need to, um, like once, once I hit a creative block or once I think that I'm, once I zoom in on something specifically, uh, I don't have the financial stress in the back of my head telling me that I need to release songs or that I need to do something. So I can imagine being in the situation where you don't give yourself that, um, that time to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, like sometimes that happens when you get deadlines for stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So that's like, let's say a label says like, you need to finish up this song within the next two weeks and then you hit it. Like then you, that's what happens to me. Like most of the time. So I have a deadline. Yeah. That's when I start to zoom in on things. And that's when it gets to that point where I feel like I'm overproducing certain elements in the track. So I've had this with a song that I was finishing two weeks ago. I did, I think 24 mixes and I was just like, at the end I was listening back from mix 24. I was comparing it to mix one and it was nearly the same. And I was like, Oh my God, did I spend like so long on yeah. trying to get the mix right? Kind of, I was still, I was still on time for the deadline, but it was like insane looking at the two mixes. But then I started mm. looking like in depth, what I'd done in the meantime, like revisiting this mix every day and like trying to get the right punch or like on a kick and like yeah. the right side chaining on like something. And, um, what I noticed is that I made like a lot of like channel strip presets in, in logic that had all kinds of like UAD processing on it and like nice stuff that I wanted to implement for a long time, but didn't take the time for. Yeah. Uh, cause when I, when I make music, I'm, I'm more in like a, in, in like a, a quick creative vibe yeah. as I like tried to explain before, like I, I used to work in a way that I would, I would do the very heavy production side before doing the songwriting. But now that I've switched it around, um, that aspect of like mixing and like blending everything together nicely that comes afterwards. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was very, very nice to see that I've actually, cause I thought I, I, I had like, uh, wasted a lot of time in between the mix one and mix 24 of that new track. But yeah. as it turns out, I've only spent my time very well on like creating those, those presets and like making my future work more fluently. And that was, that was like super interesting because yeah. there was, a, there was a certain amount of pressure still going on, but yeah, I guess for me, that's, that's why I say I'm, I'm, I've got a very, or like not a very biased perspective, but I've, I have a biased perspective on, on creative block, I think, because yeah. I have a very, I've made a very particular situation for myself in which I can take time to figure something out and like take my time to create something that I'm, that I can use later on in a, in a creative process. But then when it comes to sync, you, sometimes you just have to set your personal yeah. preferences aside and work with whatever you've got. I guess. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've got these like UAD channel strips that you've set up. We haven't really talked too detailed about production. So I'd love for you to dive into some of the specific plugins or tools that you're using that are essential or at least a core part of your production workflow. Yeah. Um, 
I've only used uh, started using UAD plugins and like uh, UAD interface. I think four months ago, so I'm still quite new to that um, whole UAD thing. But I'm I'm just completely loving it. Um, I've yeah I've obviously I, I use a lot of um, hardware, so most of my sounds come from um, from either either one of my Moog synths or. Uh, one of my modular modular synths or one of my guitars or my voice I just record a lot of stuff and um, then throw that into like a channel strip for instance on on like a vocal effect um, that could be like an altar boy uh, by sound toys and that going through a reverb for instance then if you record like a mono vocal and you push it through little altar boy and then through reverb, it becomes a, it can become a stereo signal. Yeah. So then after the reverb, I do um, a utility plugin to make the signal mono again. And then I push it through another uh, um, altar boy, for instance. And then if you pitch up the first altar boy, like the pitch and the format both go up to 12. And then the second altar boy, you, you pitch them down again. So you pitch them back to the original uh key that the sound was in mm-hmm. um it creates all these weird kind of like artifacts that yeah. are pretty hard to uh yeah to recreate like to and um so after the um auto boy there's a lot of dynamic eqing usually going on because i've i've got the um, fab filter q3 which i'm absolutely loving for anything uh eq mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like just being able to sidechain certain frequencies on an equalizer that's that's so so useful um so i'm i'm yeah using a lot of eqs then and usually at the end i i push a lot of my analog inputs through either one of the uad tape plugins so i got the the studer 800 plugin which is like a, yeah. an old tape machine I love that. plugin which is which is great for um for processing like drum sounds as well but like if you if you push like an analog synth through that and sometimes i also put like the, the manly uh, massive passive uh, eq before that or like the pull tech yeah. uh, tube tube eq because it always gives like an analog signal even more warmth and like depth if you if you put that on so that's like a pretty standard chain, I guess, for 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 some things that I record. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's, it's so like I still have to read up a lot about um, what these plugins can actually do because I'm I'm I just feel like I'm I'm just scratching the surface of them. But yeah, it's just so nice having because uh, nearly all the UAD plugins they sound very warm and like rich which I was very, I was very hesitant about, about getting a UAD interface and like using the plugins because I thought it was so expensive. And then like once, uh, cause Tom was already using a lot of UAD stuff. And yeah. I was, when I was over there, every time he worked with that, I was like, "Wow, this sounds so good. And then he kept saying like, yeah, you need to get UAD mate. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll switch to UAD. I've never heard somebody who's invested in an Apollo and then bought a bunch of UAD plugins say that they regret it. Like it's a yeah, big it's financial true. investment and understandably it's tough for a lot of people to do. And you know, waves and slate are great alternatives, especially the slate deal, just cause mm-hmm. it's like 15 bucks a month. You can get so many great analog modeled plugins, but 
if you've got the disposable income for it, if you're working a nine to five and you don't have that much time for production, but you've got some extra cash, it's, it's worth it. It's by no means necessary, but it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. And like I use a lot of uh, other plugins as well. So I recently found a granular plugin called ribs. It's a free, Mm. it's a free to download plugin by Eugene Yaskin or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's just called ribs. And if you, if you look for ribs granular, you're going to find it and it's ridiculous. It's so good. It's like, you can, you can just easily put like any recorded signal, like a whole track into that thing and make it sound like a completely different track or like, it's just an amazing tool for soundscaping and like for, um, creating a, a nice, yeah, strange melody that, that sounds like a whole track is being processed and pitched, which is great. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I also use a lot of distortion on a lot of things. Uh, I haven't used it that much anymore, but I like for the, for the more, uh, drum heavy electronic sound that I was doing on the latest album and EP that kind of made a lot of sense, like using, using a lot of distortion on percussion and, um, what tools are you normally using for that? Uh, I still use trash. So trash two by isotope. Mm-hmm. It's a classic one, but it's so good. You can like, especially like using multi-band distortion on a single track. That's just, yeah, yeah. that's just, a uh, still works for me. Like I don't want to change that. If it ain't broke. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Um, so I used a lot of that and, uh, use a lot of the Valhalla stuff. So, um, I have to say though, like I always used to use Valhalla for every reverb, um, that I wanted, but now that I've got the, I've got the, the UAD AKG spring verb. Yeah. And ever since I got that, I'm like, Oh, that one's, that one's a bit, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a competitor now, but, um, yeah, that AKG one takes up about like 50% of DSP, uh, CPU on the UAD thing. So yeah. it's like, there's no way you're going to use that much. I just always make like one reverb send in every project now and just like put the AKG verb on there and mm. send anything to <laughs> that. So yeah, I guess it kind of, it really influenced my workflow so far. Um, I just remembered like a lot of people ask me how, cause I've, I've got a certain like setup for, uh, channels and like, uh, side chaining and all that. And, um, a lot of people ask me, how do I get like a, a, a hi hat to sound like it's side chaining, but then with like a, a distortion or like a crispy, crispy effect, yeah. which is basically whenever a kick drum and a, and a hi hat hit on the same moment, it kind of sounds like the hi hat is crushed beyond, beyond the edge of the galaxy. It's like, it sounds just fucking yeah. nuts. And, um, basically all that is is the logic compressor set to optical so it's like if you set side chaining on the on the hi-hat channel and you side chain your kick drums to the to the hi-hats then or you side chain the hi-hat to the kick drum sorry um if you switch to optical compression and you turn the ratio all the way up and the threshold all the way down then it sounds like it's just like distorting the signal every time the kick comes in which is, I mean, it's a nice artifact and you can use it to get more of a, a very aggressive and like gritty yeah. feel. And that's something you can, you can hear a lot in, in 
I guess that's what I think that people are doing now, but could also be something completely different. At least that's that's the way that I I get those sounds. <laughs> it's so cool. Essentially, like over compressing it when the kit comes in, which is giving you those artifacts. Exactly. Yeah. Which is introducing distortion because you're compressing it more than you normally would. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like it's super hard compression, but then also apparently the optical circuitry or like the virtual optical circuitry makes it a bit different. Yeah. Or something. It kind of gives it a, a different character. And uh, yeah, I've used that so many times. I can't even. Any yeah. other tricks like that that you can think of right now? I think because my setup is so much based on just the analog input that I feed into it. It's hard to like, uh, I don't really have any, any, any sound generator plugin tricks yeah. or something. Um, so with me, it's more about processing and there are a few things that I like to do, uh, at the moment. And that's, um, putting, uh, OTT on like a drum bus. So that's like the kick drum yeah. and snare and like all kinds of like percussive sounds that you consider being the main drums and then putting like OTT on there dynamic EQing and like filtering off a bit of the low end on the on the on the yeah of the of the kicks basically pushing that into distortion module so let's say for this yeah. for this time it's it's trash because <laughs> it's yeah. still isotope trash it's still my preferred uh, distortion plugin um and then pushing it into uh the manly massive passive EQ and boosting back in a bit of the low end because apparently the the uh, virtual analog plugins from UAD they kind of take out the low end and you boost it back in with a UAD plugin or with maybe with another plugin as well I don't know but whenever I do it with the manly massive passive EQ it creates a different type of low end which is more like a rounded mm. low end than yeah. the original sample had um, and then just imaging because I've I've been getting a lot into uh, imaging and I, I've only recently found out that there's a, a stereo pan on stereo channels in Logic because <laughs> I, I I was very much unaware yeah. of that and I, I found out the hard way. But someone was telling me like, why do you pan stereo channel all the way to the left? Because then basically you're just dipping the right channel, which is like oh, you're always in that signal. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> yep so i mean that's it's always good to learn new things i guess but um yeah for like I'm, I'm just getting into imaging a lot and like finding the right positions within the stereo spectrum uh for each of the sounds so uh sometimes i use um the s1 the mm -hmm. waves s1 imager for that and sometimes um one of the good hertz uh mid-side yeah. plugins which is very handy for like uh, keeping the low range of the sound mono and uh, expanding a bit of the high end of like yeah. drums. Because I always like to have kick drums not be completely mono, uh, just the low end of the kick drums be very like yeah. mono and, and like in your face. And then the, the high end be a bit more spread throughout the stereo okay. field, I guess. And also just, I just play around with a lot of as I mentioned before, like a lot of bouncing in place and then pushing it through the same chain again and again and again, and just eventually ending up with something that I've reversed and then pushed through a reverb and then bounced it and then reversed it again and pushing it through the same reverb and then going autoid distortion. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just like trying to find these, these crazy sounds just by, just by yeah. processing them. And at one point you kind of find like a rhythm 
at least that's why I had for myself is like at first I was just experimenting with these tools and now I actually know what they can bring to sound mm. so it's like whenever I record something I'm like oh this could do with this chain yeah. and then sometimes I've got like a preset for that and sometimes I uh, yeah sometimes I'm, I'm just trying to come up with a new one on the go before we close things out on production what are what is some of the modular gear that you're using right now I've got um, two of the Moog um, Mother 32 synths. Okay. So those are like semi-modular, I guess. I've got the Make Noise uh, No Coast, which is yeah. uh, a pretty <laughs> pretty interesting uh, FM uh, box. It's a very tiny thing, but it, it's just like the way they designed it is so fun. It's like you, with Moog, everything is like, super straightforward and you know exactly what you're doing and it's like there's no yeah there's no mistaking for whatever one of the patches will do but with make noise they put all these kinds of crazy symbols on on the synth design <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah they just give their own names to some of the knobs and it's like it's, it's so much fun uh using that in combination with the moves and like patching in between them as well yeah. uh because you get very surprising results with that and very very noisy results as well <laughs> and um yeah, I've uh, I've got a few um, pocket operators from the teenage engineering uh, company. Uh, they they obviously don't really count as being modular gear, but I like to put them in the modular chain sometimes and use them as like triggers because you can you can link the outputs of the of the uh, pocket operators to the moves and yeah. to the make noise uh, no coast, and that will give you a synced. Um, well, it's almost like a sync clock, basically, but then with yeah. a lot of different sounds, which is uh, which can be very interesting, I guess. Um, and yeah, that's that's about the the modular stuff that I have right now. I've been looking into getting like modular samplers as well, but it's just like a bit too much <laughs> money for now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much keen on expanding that sometimes, but I don't think mm-hmm. that will happen in the in the near future. And then I got the 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 main the Moog um, Sub 37 mm-hmm. as like a main synth. And I'm I'm linking that to the Moog uh, Mother 32s as well. So mm-hmm. whatever that, like I can do all kinds of back and forth communication between all these synths, which is, uh, which is nice and which gives a very, um, well, not specifically random uh, feel. You can, you can make something very random with them, of course, but you can also... Yeah even like create a polyphonic setup where you use um because the, the the mother 32s they have like classic five pin midi inputs so what i can do is i can hook up my rme interface uh, midi output to one of the midi ins on one of the uh, mother 32s and hook up the other midi in on the other mother 32 to the moog sub 37 yeah and basically what you get is like a polyphonic moog which is pretty intense like if you if you got um i obviously i don't have the money to pay for a moog one which is oh the gosh. new poly moog like which 5K is like us <laughs> yeah just like oh man that's so much but um yeah i've I, at least i got like a, a paraphonic sub 37 and then two extra voices with the mother 32s which is which does it for me i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah oh wait that's oh man i nearly forgot um because i've i've also um like in terms of sound, like plugins that actually output sound, so like mm. synth plugins, I do use some of the Arturia 
uh, V series plugins. Mm-hmm. So like the the CMI Fairlight sampler, which is amazing, mm-hmm. and they also have the 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 Moog Model D remake yeah. uh, synth in there, which you can play like polyphonically as well, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I forgot about those, but those are like my my <laughs> also yeah, yeah. a few of my go to tools in like messing up sounds. So I think with that, let's kind of close out the production talk. We've talked a lot about how your direction and focus for this project has shifted since you started it. Given that, what kind of is your goal and focus for it right now? Well, I've I've got a few goals that are uh, a, a bit new to me. And um, yeah. they all kind of fit within my current mind state of... Um, yeah, kind of figuring out myself a bit more as well. So like I've recently found out that I was like a bit like suffering from a bit of a of like a burnout type thing. And um, I kind of got into, yeah, like getting to know my own limits better. And like I was always working very, very much. And like I was not thinking about my um, either my mental state or like my physical state uh, anymore. Which basically caught up with me a while ago. Uh, it's like a half year ago, and um, ever since then, it's it's just been about finding um, what works for me. And uh, one of the things that's that's that I found was like the idea of releasing music independently as well. So not having to mm-hmm. um, yeah get involved with with a label and like releasing music just by myself. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the what's one of the goals that I have right now is just to um, increase the amount of output that I have by mm-hmm. also still releasing with with labels, of course, because it's it's just so much fun like seeing the response that you get sometimes from from labels and from their following. It's it's just very very nice. So I've got um, another few songs coming out with. Um, pretty soon ish so that's uh that's nice and then i also want to focus on getting more of that uh independent feel and releasing some music myself so i i intend to um release music very regularly like every month which might sound like uh, a lot but actually um i thought about i've thought about the musical climate now and how how i feel about releasing music whenever I feel it's done. And I believe that in in the time that we are in now, it's actually a pretty nice idea to try out just to like, because yeah. obviously the people that um, follow you, they want to, they, they'd rather have music every now and then than have to wait for three years for another album, I guess. I mean, there's always, there's, yeah. there's always going to be people saying like, yeah, I like the idea of an album because it's like a full story. But then you see like artists left and right dropping like single after single after single after single and then mm-hmm. doing an album which contains like all the singles and one surprise track, which is basically the yeah. same idea, just giving it, uh, the album is basically just a means of giving them, giving all the songs another boost in terms of attention. I've just been trying to figure out what works for me because looking at other artists is, is very inspiring and like interesting, but it can also be very, um, very tricky to find your own, your own place in that, in that field, I guess. So yeah, that's, that's mainly what my focus is going to be on. And, um, again, the style is just completely shifted to something else again. 
like I, I think it's because of the fact that I'm doing um a bit better now in terms of like emotional stability, I guess. I mean I was never like the um uh yeah, I I with like emotional stability I mean like I've been through overworking and like uh panic yeah. attacks like on the regular and like just having the sense that everything was a bit too much. I've been I've been through that and I'm trying to mm. like I'm still trying to find my way out of that into um yeah becoming like as productive as possible while still maintaining uh yeah a very healthy lifestyle i guess and uh yeah just by realizing that i've i think my production methods have changed and my the way i make music has changed and the way i yeah, the way the way the music sounds is a result of that, and and that's why it's 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 going to be way more chill than what I what I used to yeah. do, and that's uh, it's it's funny. Just like also with that, it kind of feels like it's going full circle. Just coming from like my first album, or like the first songs that I released with um, Fog Mountain, those were like very chill and like. It had some like uh, beats in them, but not like very present in your face, distorted drums and like synths all over the place. And yeah, the new stuff is definitely more acoustic, more of my own uh, vocals as well. A lot of guitar, I guess. That's uh, that's how that's yeah. how 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 we would describe it. And still, yeah, still, I I think I'm I'm finding as we've talked about before, like I think I feel like I'm finding a sort of like signature in my sound finally, which is, which is a very nice feeling as an artist. Like you, I've always been hoping that uh, I had a signature and people around me have told me that, yeah, you do have a sound signature, um, but I've never heard it. So this is the first Mm. time that I'm, I'm hearing a signature, but I don't think it's because of the the way I, I I hear my music, I I think the signature, the feeling of me having a signature is coming from how I'm making the music. So I'm using a very specific input for all all the songs that I'm doing now, and that kind yeah. of creates that signature feeling, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, which is why it's also interesting to consider like self-releasing and uh, just whenever I'm I'm happy with a song, I'm just gonna master it and uh yeah release it i guess (laughs) i love that yeah with that we'll wrap things up for this episode you can find zess's music in the description of this podcast so definitely go give that a listen as this podcast is just about over you it's been great chatting with you appreciate you being on the show yeah thanks so much for taking the time